Thank you, Emeka. That was beautiful. I got to hear that for the first time at my kitchen table when it was first worked on. So, um, I hope you guys pray for Emeka. Um, he's halfway through his school. Lord willing, he's going to graduate next May. And uh, he's going to be preaching his first sermon here, Youth Sunday, June the 10th. And uh, so uh, he's going to be preaching from Romans 6. And uh, he's been teaching our adult Sunday school with Ephesians. And anyway, it's been a great blessing to us. And that was a good word. Good job. <clears throat> Let me pray again for us, and then we'll look at the beginning of 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Let's pray. Father, you are the one who's made a way, and we're only standing here because of you. It's because of you that we're in Christ Jesus. And so, Lord, may we consider our calling. Not many mighty, not many noble, for us to humble ourselves under your mighty hand. To recognize all things come from you. Every good and perfect gift. We ask that you would bring that good and perfect gift here now. As we sit under your word. That we would be revived in heart. Bring joy to our, our souls. Renew us. Bring conviction of sin. And lead us to repentance. We ask in Jesus name. Amen. Staff's been going through this book called Union with Christ by Rankin Wilburn. Love this book. Ben introduced it to me. I passed it along to my dad. He's been passing it along like hotcakes. And uh, there's a section in the book where he's given some bad news. And he says that in 2006, <clears throat> there were thousands of American college students who filled out a survey. They weren't told what it was, but it was actually the narcissistic personality inventory a psychological evaluation that asks for responses to statements such as, I'm an extraordinary person. I am more capable than other people. Everybody likes to hear my stories. And if I ruled the world, it would be a better place. The NPI, as it's called, has been given to college students for several decades. By looking at the change in responses over time, a recent study shows a 30% increase in narcissism over the last 30 years. Even more striking, in the 1950s, 12% of, of, of teens agreed with the statement, I'm an important person. In the 1980s, just 30 years later, 80% of teens agreed with the, with the same statement. By our own reckoning, we live in an increasingly self-centered world. And that's what we're going to look at uh, this morning here in 1 Corinthians 7. And this wonderful thing has happened. I've lost my sermon. Well, God is good. Here it is. It's right here. Thank you, honey. I, I would have just done it without notes, but the notes are... When I don't use notes, I go really long. So, so that's the part of the problem. But we live in this me culture... The me generation, as it's sometimes referred to, and we often use this phrase that I need to figure out who I am. We need to find ourselves. There's actually a magazine entitled Self, and self people read it, and it leads to selfishness. Um, Brian Regan, who's a hilarious comedian, he's not a Christian, has a whole skit on the me monster. If you've never seen it, you could just Google Brian Regan, me monster, me. 
you know, more and more we want it, you know, it's about me. Well, we've lost this G.K. Chesterton idea where he says, how much larger your life would be if yourself could become smaller in it. And imagine for a moment that you had discovered that you had a winning lottery ticket. Not that you play the lottery, but, you know, let's imagine you have the ticket. What would you do with that ticket? Well, first of all, hopefully you'd probably call some really smart people and some lawyers before you'd ever go redeem that ticket and find out what's the proper way to go about this. But you would redeem the ticket because if you don't redeem the ticket, you don't have access to any of the money even though you have this ticket. Otherwise, you would be failing to possess your possessions. And Francis Schaeffer in his classic book, True Spirituality, he says the greatest sin of Christians is a failure to possess our possessions. And we have this continual amnesia of forgetting what we've already forgotten that we have in Christ. And as a result, we tend to live powerless in our own energy and strength, and we're trying to build an identity with me in the middle of it. And that's what happened to the church in Corinth. And it's happening today. And it happens right here at Shady Grove Presbyterian Church. It happens right here in my own heart. When I forget what I already have in Christ, and I fail to redeem this great lottery ticket that's much better than anything. I've been blessed with every spiritual blessing in Christ. And so Paul begins this epistle with good news for the church of Corinth, and it's good news for Shady Grove Presbyterian Church. He's reminding them of who they are in Christ. Listen to what he says. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in him, in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you or in you. So you were not lacking in any spiritual gift as you were wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless or blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. And so... This book begins with the way that all of Paul's letters begin. I've memorized it. It's real easy. Paul. (laughs) That's how his letters begin. They begin with Paul. And then he reminds them that he is called by the will of God to be an apostle. And so Paul reminds them right from the start that he didn't call himself. This is not about him. And the church didn't call Paul. Paul wasn't in his titles, some fancy initials before his name, like Reverend or Dr. Paul. He wasn't into impressing. He was into impacting. And he's impacting them with the truth that as an apostle, 
Paul has been directly commissioned by God to be an apostle, a sent one directly from God, and he's speaking with authority that comes from God. So you can't say, and some people will say today, well, I like those red letters in the Bible. I like the things that are from Jesus. I like Jesus, but I don't like Paul. If you like Jesus, you have to like Paul because Jesus was the one who directly commissioned Paul as an apostle. So Paul's reminding them that this isn't my idea. This isn't somebody else's idea. This isn't the church's idea. This is Jesus himself, I, Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus. And so if you remember Paul's very conversion, I mean, he was anti-Jesus, anti-Jesus all the way. He would be what we would call a terrorist. He's killing people that are standing for Christ. And you remember his conversion. It's referenced three different times in Acts. And in Acts 26, in one of those references, we're told that when he had fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goats. And I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But rise, stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and those in which I will appear and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I'm sending you. That was an apostle, was a sent one. To open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. You could say Paul was called. That's a pretty distinct call, is it not? And so Paul's reminding them as he begins this epistle that we're not on an equal playing field here, hey, Corinthian people. He's letting them know he's an apostle commissioned by Jesus himself, an eyewitness of the resurrection, and now he's writing to the church. And he also mentions that he's also, uh, he says, and our brother Sosthenes. Now this is a really, you know, it's kind of these things you just read read right through, and you're like, wait a minute. There's only one other reference to Sosthenes in the whole Bible. And Sosthenes is most likely, people think, was his scribe. Paul's dictating this letter. Sosthenes is, is in agreement with it and is a scribe. But Sosthenes, let me just tell you a little bit about him. So in Acts 18 is the story of where the emperor Claudius had kicked the Jews out of Rome. So we've got Priscilla and Aquila, these two Jews that are over in Italy, today modern-day Italy. They're in Rome, and they are sent out. Okay, so these are two blue-collar immigrant Jewish refugees. Priscilla and Aquila, they relocate to Corinth. And here Paul meets up with them, hears about them, and the three of them have a tent business down on Commerce Street, right near the water, where these two, two ports came together. And in that thoroughfare and city area booming, they are doing business. And they are just doing blue-collar work of building and making tents. But Paul begins to preach the gospel in Corinth 
in the synagogue. So apparently there's a synagogue there in Corinth. And Paul began to teach that Jesus is the Christ or the Messiah. And when he begins to teach in the synagogue that Jesus is the Messiah, that isn't received very well. We are told in Acts 18, as Paul's in Corinth, that he was reviled and opposed strongly. And so Paul says, your blood be on your own heads. I'm going to the Gentiles. He goes next door. And we are told in Acts 18, verse 7, he left there and went to a house named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God, and then we're told, and this is an important, whenever you get a little nice little footnote like this, it's really important. His house was next door to the synagogue. You know that that's going to create some controversy. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household, and many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. So we have a Corinthians church that's born right next door to the synagogue. And the ruler of the synagogue becomes a convert, and we've got Jews and Gentiles coming together in this church now, okay? We haven't gotten to Sosthenes yet. So you can imagine this problem that it caused. Revival breaks out next door to the synagogue. That's a problem, because the Jews were very envious. So Crispus is converted to Christ, and there's a new ruler that's going to take over the synagogue, Guess who that was? Sosthenes. So when we're told in Acts 18 that when Gallio, the proconsul of Achaia, that's just fancy terms for he was the DA. Let's just say he was the district attorney. They go to him and the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal saying, this man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, if were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since it's a matter of question about words and names and your own law, see to it yourselves. I refuse to judge of these things. And he drove them from the tribunal. So the DA dismissed the case. And they all seized Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the tribunal. But Gallio paid no attention to any of this. So that's the only reference to Sosthenes in the Bible, except for this verse 1 here, 1 Corinthians, is he's taken a thumping because it's like, all right, this was your idea, your initiative. Let's take Paul and let's go public with this thing. And we were, were embarrassed in front of the whole tribunal. And so they turned on him and his own Jewish congregation beat the stuffing out of him in front of everybody. So somehow in the midst of this, Sosthenes is converted. And so now we're talking about a church that is next door to a synagogue, and the two rulers of the synagogue have both been, both been converted. So if you're wondering why, Corinth, if you read the book of Corinthians, then you're wondering why they have all these pride problems. He's constantly telling them they're puffed up, constantly telling them they're arrogant, constantly telling them about boasting. And, you know, so he's telling him love is patient. You know, love is kind. It doesn't boast. It's not envious, not arrogant. I mean, he's constantly making these references to their pride. Wouldn't it be a little hard to be not struggling with pride when you've got two rulers, two head rulers of the synagogue have now been converted? And you're in this booming town. This is the city. This is where it's at. And we are the church. And we are right next door to the synagogue. 
And they thought they were something special. And so they'd be becoming the me church. And they're forgetting they're starting to fail to possess their possessions. And you only have one command in all of 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Unless Ben can find one. You're preaching next week, so maybe I'm missing one. But I've looked through there. And the only one that I see is consider your calling, brothers. Consider your calling, brothers. And the idea is that calling is this big word throughout the book of Corinthians. As you remember the reading that Paul or that Ben gave from 1 Corinthians 7, every single verse that he read from 1 Corinthians 7 talked about called. If you were circumcised when you were called, stay circumcised. If you were uncircumcised, when you were called, stay uncircumcised. You know, everything comes back to remain in the state in which you were called. Consider your calling, brothers. And in verse 2, we're told that the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints. Called to be holy. That's who you are. And then in verse 9, he reminds them, God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son. He says it again in verse 24. To those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. And in verse 26, consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. Consider your calling. Did you call yourself? Can you call yourself? Can Apollos call you? Can Paul call you? He's saying, no, consider your calling, brother. Some of you are saying, I'm Apollos, I'm of It's Jesus who calls. And we're going to talk about the difference between the outward call and an inward call. But consider your calling is that, is that this is the inward work of God's Holy Spirit. This is a massive passage when you understand it. This was a light bulb in my own life. People ask you, how did you become Reformed? You know, I grew up in a Baptist church, went to Nyack College, and at some point along the way, I came to embrace God's sovereignty, that God is sovereign in salvation. We talk about what does it mean to be Reformed. It just means you believe that it's 100% God in salvation. And the only thing I contributed was my sin. That's it. And the idea was I took a systematic class in college we had to read Burkhoff and uh, had this professor named Professor Nielsen. And uh, he was a great teacher and he was feeding us John Murray's notes. And I didn't know who John Murray was. Turns out he was somebody famous and wrote great books on systematic theology. And he was feeding us John Murray's notes. Un- un- you know, just good stuff. Well, we had to do a word study. And where I became kind of gave up and as as C.S. Lewis talks about, you know, put down your weapons and we'll talk. You know, I gave in and admitted that God was God. I was I was skeptical. I really thought that I had contributed something to my salvation. And so we had to do a word study and it was the word call. We had to look up call, calling, called every time it's used in the New Testament. And every time it's used in the New Testament, you had to write next to it, inward calling or outward calling. And then you had to write after that, is it effectual or not? And what you realize as you start going through the book or the whole Bible is there's very few times that the Bible actually speaks of calling as an outward call. But there's this idea that many are called, few are chosen. 
right? That's the outward calling. Everybody's called for supper, but not everybody comes. You know, we talked about this in, in, with our lunch with, and Porter Harlow was saying, yeah, it's one thing, you know, the general call is it goes out there, everybody, hey, come for supper. But it's another thing when the parent goes upstairs and pulls the earbuds out of the, out of the ears and says, it's time for supper right now, you're coming with me. That's the inward call, okay? That's effectual. It's going to accomplish its purpose. For the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable, Romans eleven twenty nine. When God calls you, he is faithful. He who calls you is faithful and he will do it, 1 Thessalonians 5, 24. Right here in verse, 1 Corinthians 1, 9, this was a big one. When I was studying this as a 19-year-old in, semi, in college, getting to 1 Corinthians 1, 9 and admitting God is God. God is faithful by whom you were called. I didn't call myself, and what he's begun, he's going to complete. And you realize, wow, all these references are effectual. Verse 2, called to be saints. You're called to be holy. And when he calls you, he's going to accomplish what he's begun. Those whom he calls, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. Romans 28, 8, 28 to 30 is this golden chain of salvation, the Puritans would call it. And the idea is that it can't be broken. There are no fumbles. When God has a people for himself, he calls them. And then Jesus comes and he dies for them. And then the Spirit applies the work of Christ to his people. And so when he's saying to this Corinthian church, Remember or consider your calling. He's saying, take a humble pill. If you notice the title of these this messages are humble truths for a proud church. There was all this pride manifesting itself that I'm of Apollos and I'm of Cephas and, and I'm really special with my gift and I get to prophesy. I got tongues. I got healing. I'm really special. And Paul is constantly reminding, wait a minute. You, it, what do you have that wasn't given to you? He reminds them again and again that it was all God, you see. And so we make a distinction between an outward call and an inward call. Anthony Hokema in his book, Saved by Grace, he says, the gospel call, this is the outward call to everybody. It's just the offering of salvation in Christ to people, together with an invitation to accept Christ in repentance and faith in order that they may receive forgiveness of sins and eternal life. That call is to everybody this morning. Come to Jesus. That was our opening hymn. Come to him. Experience his grace, forgiveness of sins, eternal life to all who repent and believe. That outward call is like, you know, you get the mail in the mailbox and you, have, you get lots of advertisements and, and taking advantage of a particular product or service. And this, this mail goes to a lot of people and we all get it indiscriminately and we can choose. We're in control. We can accept it, we can reject it. We're in charge. But when the police show up at the door and they knock on the door and they hand you a subpoena and you're being summoned to appear in court on such and such a date, that's an inward call. That's not optional, you're not in charge. You've been summoned and you're coming. That's the difference between an outward call and an inward call. One is very personal and it's irrevocable. It's effectual. John Murray defines it like this. He says, The fact that calling is an act of God and of God alone should impress upon us the divine monergism in the initiation of salvation and actual possession. It's not synergism. 
It's not something we cooperate with in regeneration. We, are, we have to be born again. Unless you can see the kingdom of God, Jesus is. You have to be born again to see it. It has to be, God has to do it. It's, it's monergistic in the initiation of salvation. We become partakers of redemption by an act of God that instates us in the realm of salvation and all the corresponding changes in us and in our attitudes and reactions are the result of the saving forces at work within the realm in which by God's sovereign predestinating purpose begins to take effect. It is in this respect of divine monergism after the pattern of predestination itself. It's of God, it is of God and God alone. And so that's important because what Paul is getting at when he says, consider your calling, brothers, in verse 26. Consider your calling. He goes on and says, look, it's not many of you who are wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that, here it is, Here's why this is important. So no human being might boast in the presence of God. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus. You didn't do anything. It was monergism. It was completely 100% God. Not like ivory soap, 99 and whatever percentage that was of, of pure soap, whatever that was. Like there's some lake that's got, you know, pure ivory soap somewhere. It ain't like that. It's 100% God. So if you're in Jesus, you got no reason to boast this morning. No reason whatsoever. It's all him. It's because of him. And he says he's our wisdom. He's our righteousness. He's our sanctification. He's our redemption. What else is there that he can be? He's everything. So it's written, let him who boasts, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. So if we thought that it was something about us, as I've often said, when we get to heaven, we would tell God to move on, move on over. I'm here now. I'll take it from here. That throne will be a good spot for my, my seat if we thought we did it, if we were something special. But as you read through the book of Corinthians, this is what's happening, is this church is failing to possess their possessions. It's not bringing this humility and as a result, they think they're special and they're not loving one another because they think they're better than certain people. It hasn't made the horizontal implications that I'm no greater than anybody else. There's nothing special about me. It wasn't like he, he saw how I was much smarter than my neighbor, so he chose me because of my intellectual prowess and I, how intelligent I am and how well I just process spiritual truth. Are you kidding? We're dead in trespasses and sins. We have no spiritual connector receptivities. That receptor cable is broken. And God has to speak. And when he speaks, like when he says, Lazarus, come forth, Lazarus comes forth because the word of God creates a power in it. Just as the word said, when God said, let there be light, there was light. And he showed light in our hearts, as 2 Corinthians 4 says. And he gives regeneration to his people whom he calls. My dad tells a funny story of growing up. He was in Kensington. This was Kensington Junior High School. And it's, I guess it's been torn down. But it was one of these holidays where it was like Martin Luther King Day or some day, it was probably, I don't even know, if, well, yeah, it could have been, probably not Martin Luther King Day. It wouldn't have, 
He's a little too old for that. But it was one of these days where, the sta- where some of the staff were at the, were at the school, and he didn't know it. And him and his two buddies went up on the roof, and they're playing around at the top of this middle school. And the principal came up on top, climbed up the ladder, and said, come with me. We would call that an inward call, okay? We would say that, that was effectual. When the principal comes up to the top of the building, and there's no way off, and he says, follow me down the ladder. And he directed them to the bathroom, and he let them pick out which paddle they wanted. And they got to pick which paddle, that they had to put their hands on the stall and take the paddling. And he said they never went on the roof again. Boy, the me generation would have a hard time with that, wouldn't they? Well, the idea here is that God summons us, but he doesn't give us a spanking. Even though we deserve it, Jesus took the spanking. And now this word to us is grace to you and peace from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. He can, and Paul loves this church. I mean, think of all the problems. You read the book of Corinthians, and you realize in these first nine verses, Paul has nothing but nice things to say about them. He gives thanks for them. He's thanking them for this church, that this church is a mess. I mean, they got a guy sleeping with his mother-in-law, and they're boasting about it. And, or, I mean, it is some weird stuff going on. Abusing at the Lord's table. They're suing one another. I mean, there's all kinds of problems. And, and he's going to give them the business later. But he starts off with just incredible love of giving thanks for them. And he's reminding them of that they have been called to be holy. And that they are holy positionally now in Jesus. And now they're to possess their possessions. They're to live in light of who they really are. And isn't that what we need to be continually reminded? That this morning, God says to us, grace to you and peace. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ, not based on how well you did this week, not how well you did on your exams, how well you did in your performance review, how well you did in keeping the speed limit, and you can get any of these nice nice bumper sticker pictures of the back of your car. You know, you're, you're, you're loved based on what Jesus has done for you. Your identity is in him. And so now consider your calling. So in light of considering your calling, I just want you to think of how uh, some of these verses and just listen for the word called. Ephesians 4. I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There's one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call. Four times, I mean, he uses the word calling, to to say, love one another, because that's what you've been called to, because you've been loved. This is the will of God, your sanctification, that you should abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you should know how to control his or her own body in holiness and honor, not in a passion of lust, like the Gentiles who do, know, do not know God, that no one should transgress or wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you, for God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness." But you, O man of God, flee these things, pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness, fight the good fight of the faith, take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. 
Therefore, prepare your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, don't be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all your conduct. For you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of his own possessions, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. And once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. To those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours. This is an apostle writing, Peter. To those who have obtained a a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, may grace and peace be multiplied to you in knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has granted us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he's granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that's in the world because of sinful nature. Jude 1.1. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who were called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. They will make war on the Lamb, and the Lamb will conquer them. For he's the Lord of lords and King of kings. And those who are with him are called and chosen and faithful. Revelation 17, 14. They will make war on the Lamb, and the Lamb will conquer them. For he's the Lord of lords and the King of kings. And those with him are called and chosen and faithful. Question this morning. Are you in Christ or is Christ in you? Or is that a trick question? And the answer is both. You're in Christ and now Christ is in you. And we can celebrate and sing since Jesus came into my heart. If you love Jesus and if he's opened your eyes to see your need for him, then he comes to live in you. That's the Holy Spirit, Christ in you now, the hope of glory. But you're also in him and seated in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And when he returns, you'll return with him. That's who you are in Jesus. John MacArthur says sometimes kings don't act like kings and presidents don't act like presidents and leaders don't act like leaders and teachers don't act like teachers and so forth and preachers don't act like preachers and sometimes Christians don't act like Christians. But the Corinthians are holy. They just didn't act like it. They were failing to live in light. They were failing to possess their possessions. Don't you hate in, in this life when you find out about something that you could have had all along, and you didn't even know that you could have had it. Like, like recently, I've, I've had Logos Bible program since Brian and even Donahue got married. He gave that to me as a gift for their wedding. So I've had Logos for years. And then I was telling Ben when he came on staff, I was like, man, this, this guy came to church one Sunday, and he was showing me on his phone, he's got Logos on his phone, and he's got Hebrew and Greek and all these features, and Ben says, yeah, well, if you've got the Logos program, that could be on your phone. And I'm like, what? <laughs> I paid 80 bucks to put Gramcord on my phone so I could have the Greek New Testament with parsing abilities. And Ben comes along and says, well, if you just upgrade, and you know, you could have done that. You could have had it on your phone. 
I hate discovering that, you know, things like that. It's like, it's like you, you, pay, you pay at the restaurant and then you go out in your car and, you, you know, later you're looking through and you find the gift card that you couldn't find and you had to pay for it. We always get there and the gift card doesn't work, you know. For some reason, your gift card's not working. You know? But don't you hate that? I mean, doesn't that happen to us a lot? I think that happens a lot in the Christian life, is that you have all of these things that every spiritual blessing, great and precious promises, but you don't know you have them because you haven't gone and rediscovered them or you've forgotten that you have them. This is what you have now in Jesus. You don't have to build your identity in this meritocracy that we live in. We live in a meritocracy, as Stephen Um calls it in his commentary. And the idea is that we're always building our identity on our performance. I mean, when I was in high school, my performance was how I did on the baseball field. And if I did well, I felt great. And if I did bad, it was bad. And the problem with baseball is if you're a 300 hitter, you're pretty good. That means seven out of 10 times you feel bad. It's not a a very rewarding experience most of the time. I mean, one time I remember a baseball game where I came in on a line drive. I can still remember where I was. We were playing Loyola. And I came in on line drive, hit top of my glove, and kept going. And the runner from first scored, game over. And we walked in and, and shook everybody's hand because the ball went off my glove. I thought the line drive would dive. It rose. I lost the game. And we went straight from there to the bus. And I was the big loser. If I had just caught it, we'd have gone into extra innings. And we'd have, we had a chance to beat Loyola. But no, you, you, you dropped the ball. How do you think you feel? If you base your life on how you do at the moment, eventually, you can only do well so many times. And it's not, a good, it's not a good way to live your life because it's just a roller coaster. It's either pride or despair. Pride or despair. And what's all that based on? An identity of what? Me monster. And I'm saying repent of the me monster. It's not a good place. It'll kill you. Live for Jesus and find your identity in him. Listen to this. Our identity is sure because it is given to us by someone else. Our gifts are sure and sufficient because they were given to us by the gift maker, and our future is secure because it has been prepared for us by the one who holds the future in his hands. Because we live in a meritocracy, this sounds alien. The gospel is an anomaly in a culture that runs on self-definition, self-help, and self-realization. But for those who've reached the bitter end of identity building, competency, maintenance, and future building. It's the greatest news imaginable. In the gospel, God declares us presentable before he even looks at our record. The gospel says, stop striving to build an identity. You've been given one free of charge because of the striving of another in your place. You no longer have to live in order to build an identity, but you can live unto the identity that has been given to you. That's from Stephen Um in his commentary. It's excellent. Let him who boasts... Boast in the Lord. Consider your calling, brothers. Let's pray. Lord, we humble ourselves before you. You're the king. You're the potter. We're the clay. You're the Lord. We're the servant. And so, Lord, we want to follow you. As your sheep, you hear your voice. Forgive us, Lord, for building our identity 
on so many things other than you. And in so doing, we have a lot of fears, a lot of worries, a lot of anxiety and a lot of depression, frustration, emptiness, boredom. This world does not satisfy, but you do. Thank you, you've done everything for us, forgiving us of our sins at the cross, giving us your very righteousness, nailing our record of debt at the cross, imputing your righteousness. Thank you that you've come to live inside of us, Holy Spirit, to change us. And thank you that you're working now to conform us to the image of your Son and what you've begun, you will complete. Help us, Lord, to work out our salvation now with fear and trembling. For it's you, by your good pleasure, to work in us, to work in will. So may we submit to you and yield to you in all things, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.